it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, March 28th, 2022, a brand new broadcast week. Here on the Guy Benson Show, I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free at GuyBensonShow.com. There's a podcast for that if you can't listen live, GuyBensonShow.com. We've got an absolutely jam-packed program today. Coming up later this hour, General Jack Keane on the latest in Ukraine. We will also check in in the next hour with Jason Chaffetz, former committee chairman in the House, now a Fox News contributor. In our final hour, Ambassador Robert O'Brien, President Trump's national security advisor toward the end of his administration. He will be here, as will Josh Rogan of The Washington Post. So there's a lot to get to. In fact, right now, President Biden is speaking at the White House. He's unveiling his new budget. We know that it increases taxes if it were to pass, which it won't, but it would increase taxes. He just repeated his lie that no one making 400 grand or more or uh, less would see a tax increase under his proposals. That's not true. In fact, House Democrats have already voted for tax increases in the Build Back Better plan for the middle class. We'll set that aside. If there's anything that Biden says that is extraordinarily newsworthy, we will bring that to you. But before we get to all of the news of the day, and there are very serious, weighty issues out there, of course, and we will cover them as we always do on this show, we begin with a conversation about the slap seen around the world. Last night at the Academy Awards, Will Smith, one of the most famous actors out there, generally seen as a sort of happy-go-lucky nice guy, slapped Comedian Chris Rock on stage, he marched up there and hit him after Chris Rock made a joke at the expense of Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. I was not watching. I was actually thinking how much you would have to pay me to sit and watch an entire Oscars at this point. I'd do it maybe for a couple hundred dollars, maybe a nice catered meal, then I'd do it. But I was not watching. I was with friends, and then I saw Twitter blowing up. I saw the clip. In case you missed it, it's all anyone's talking about today. Here's what it sounded like. This was the full exchange, including all the bleeps. Cut 24. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? (laughs) 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 It's Jalazine. That was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh Uh-oh. Richard... Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Put my name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? 
<laughs> I could, oh, okay. That was the greatest night in the history of television. Okay. With us now is Jimmy Fallon, host of Fox Across America on Fox News Radio on many of these same stations from noon to three weekdays. Jimmy, we were trying to figure out who to talk Mm. Two about all of this, and you were our very first choice, and you join us out of the gate on the show today, and we're grateful for it. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure, by the way. If people don't like your routine these days, they're allowed to hit you, I understand. It's, <laughs> this, this new season of American Idol has really gotten extreme. They've come a long way. Uh, guy, I was watching it because I had been told earlier in the evening I was going to be on America's Newsroom this morning to discuss the Oscars. We just didn't know what we'd be discussing till the show was over. So in a weird, selfish way, I was like, okay, at least we got something good to talk about, but somebody needs to tell Will Smith that when people say act like you've been there before, they don't mean prison. Wow. So I just saw the after action reports and then the video surfaces and it's being shared everywhere. When I say surfaces, I mean some of the foreign feeds are what had to come back to the U.S. because ABC just cut out the Mm -hmm. audio completely for like long periods of time because there was so much cursing. We needed the foreign feeds to really see what actually happened. And we bleeped, obviously, some of the words here for FCC purposes. But people have all sorts of takes on what happened. And it kind of cuts across ideological lines. It's not predictable how people feel about this. What do you think about this? Was the joke out of bounds? Because I guess Will Smith's wife... Yeah. as a condition where she's lost her hair, and that was the sort of yeah. the, the purpose of the joke about G.I. Jane. Uh, was the joke out of bounds? Was Will Smith way out of bounds for marching up there and, and hitting yes. Chris Rock? Do you have a team here? Yes, I'm, I'm with Team Denzel Washington. Let me explain. When Will Smith was defending himself after he committed assault on national television and cried his way through the best actor acceptance speech, which, oh, by the way, how about poor Kanye West? He can't go to the Grammys because he might do something weird, but Will Smith can smack a guy in the face, and they're like, here's a trophy. But anyway, when Will Smith was defending himself, uh, and, and to be clear, himself, he didn't apologize to uh, Chris Rock. He didn't talk about Jada Pinkett Smith. He talked about his role and all the indignities he suffered in Hollywood to get where he was. Dude, you make $20 million a picture. You just assaulted a guy. You're not the hero here. And the reason we know this is during his defense, he invoked Denzel Washington. He said, Denzel pulled me aside during the commercial break, and he said, the devil comes for you at your highest moments. Yo, your friends aren't invoking the devil. They're not comparing your behavior to the devil coming for you because you're about to win the Man of the Year award. That's the admission right then and there that he knows he did something wrong. And he apologized to many people, but not the guy that he hit. Thank you. Here's part of what he said in this is minutes later. Mm -hmm. He wins Best Actor (laughs) and he gets a standing ovation. Part of the speech was cut 25. I want to apologize to the Academy. I want to apologize to my all my fellow nominees. Love will make you do crazy things. Mm. Uh, hope the Academy invites me back. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah. big cheers. There's videos of him dancing at the after parties. You know, life mm-hmm. is good. So I think Chris Rock, number one, I generally like Chris Rock. Yep. I'm inclined to be on his team anyway. In mm-hmm. this case, I definitely am. Yep. You could say it was a gratuitous shot at the physical appearance of Smith's wife. So he has legitimate reason 
to maybe not take kindly to that because she's battling this condition. She's probably sensitive about it. She's been very public about it. Mm-hmm. And Chris Rock makes this gratuitous joke about her hair yeah. in front of the world, right? I, mm-hmm. I can understand why Will Smith would be mad, although when you look at the video, at first he laughs at the joke. Yes, thank you. Then I guess he got the memo from her. Mm-hmm. I'm not happy about what he said. So then he what overcompensates in the other direction. Thank you. Walks up the stairs to the stage and hits Chris Rock. And now people are saying, like, this was a criminal assault. All right. Look, the LAPD got involved (laughs) and they said the person the the person who was assaulted does not wish to press charges. I'm like, okay, good for Chris Rock. Yeah. That was an assault. It should not happen. There's no excuse for it. It was also an open palm slap, right? This was not really intended to injure, I don't think. So some people were maybe going a little overboard on that, yeah. but it was still just a complete meltdown oh, by Will Smith big time. when he at first laughed, then changed his tune, got up there, hit him, then he's screaming the F word, and yeah. things got awfully quiet in there. <laughs> and there are reports now emerging that the Academy, quote, strongly considered removing him at that point, but didn't. They left him there. Then he got a standing ovation and won Best Picture. <laughs> they knew he was going to win. They know yeah. who's going to win Best Actor. They're not going to rip him out of there. And then what do they do? They send Jada up on stage to accept or somebody else in her absence? I mean, I'm with you in that. I never thought anyone was going to do jail time. This is the same Los Angeles where you can walk into an Ulta Cosmetics with a garbage bag, walk out with $10,000 right. worth of cosmetics, and the cops ain't coming. You know, hitting a comedian's not going to get you thrown in jail. But what Will Smith was doing, Guy, just so we're on the well, same it, page. it might. It might if <laughs> you're just a, a common person hitting a comedian. Yeah, but if, if you're you a were famous me, person hitting yeah. a, fa- a fellow famous person, mm-hmm. it's a whole different set of rules for them. Thank you. A thousand percent. And that's where the double standard is in play. But this is the bigger thing here, is that Will Smith in that moment is not actually standing up for Jada Pinkett Smith. He's standing up for Will Smith because she has been famously vocal about the fact that she's sleeping with everybody but him. If you remember, she humiliated him on the Roundtable podcast by talking about the fact that at least she is in a very open relationship. And, you know, that was his pride on the line when Chris Rock went after his wife. I think a lot of that tension boiled over. And as you said, he laughed at the joke. When you laugh at the joke, you take the money. You don't have the right to be offended if you laugh at the joke. It's like, you know the old thing in a restaurant, if you eat the whole meal, you can't send it back and say it was no good? You know, that's the equivalent of there was one crouton left, and he was like, I'm sending back the salad. I don't like it. I'm, I'm not satisfied with this salad is yes. completely gone except for this thing yeah no he did laugh at it maybe he kind of missed the reference to the hair what is it alopecia i, I don't yeah. know that that was the root of the joke so to speak yeah and then he decided okay i got i guess i need to go up there and do something mm-hmm. and it really escalated very very quickly jimmy i don't know like look uh-huh. we have no idea what's going on inside their marriage, I think you can be genuinely offended by someone mm-hmm. insulting someone that you love, regardless of what sort of yeah. marriage you're in or okay. what kind of arrangements you might have sexually. Like, I, I don't really mm-hmm. care to weigh in on that. He could have been, I think, genuinely angry 
mm-hmm. about the joke once he realized, let's say, what it was about and that it hurt his wife's feelings. But, but think Fine. about this. But the, the thing about this. You don't this, have to hit someone. No, no, there's nowhere where you should hit someone. You can't be on Will Smith's side here. Again, all the people taking his side, like, oh, he insulted his wife. Again, his friend Denzel Washington invoked the devil. If your friend is comparing your behavior to the devil coming for you, your friend is telling you, hey, man, you kind of screwed up here. Behave. But this is why nobody takes Hollywood seriously, really quick, guy. It's like you're getting paid like $25 million to pretend. Your whole life is pretend. Look, I'm Muhammad Ali. Look, I'm a cowboy in the wild, wild west. Look, I'm a fighter pilot in Independence Day. You're getting paid to pretend for a living. You should be able to take a joke. Wait, are you telling me that he didn't actually just erase people's memories after they encountered aliens. (laughs) He did it multiple times, Jimmy. This is going to kill you, but he was not half the tennis coach for the Williams sisters that you think he was. He he has nothing to do with any of those titles. You're blowing my mind, Jimmy. I didn't mean to do this to you, Guy Benson. But that's the (laughs) point. It's like Hollywood, you pretend for a living. These people hit the lottery. If If I was everyone in Hollywood, I would just shut up and enjoy the good thing. And I'm not saying this to silence their political views. I'm saying this because if you're in Hollywood, you're famous. Why? Because you hit the genetic lottery. You are so good looking that we're willing to pay 20 bucks for a popcorn to watch you recite words that were written by an ugly person. Take it from a guy who spent a lot of time in writer's rooms. There's no show ponies in there. And the fact that they've had it this good for this long and they're now kind of corrupting it by venturing into like, oh, I'm taking myself seriously or I'm getting political. This is not an old thing, guy. If you remember back to 2003, Michael Moore got booed at the Oscars because he took a shot at George W. Bush. He was trashing a Republican president and got booed at the Oscars because they were like, this isn't who we are. But how quickly we forget, and now we're in an Oscars where they can't take a joke, which is kind of silly because they are one. Yeah, and I did see, speaking of jokes, a pretty good line mm. from John Gabriel who tweeted, Chris Rock is lucky, and I'm paraphrasing, Chris Rock is lucky he didn't take a shot at Alec Baldwin's wife. <laughs> So that was well, pretty good. That's bringing two Hollywood plot lines together for that joke. One, I want to get your take on this. Last point, Jimmy. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The comedian Nikki Glaser, who yep. can be very funny and also mm-hmm. very raunchy, and mm-hmm. I like some of her stuff, not all of it. She was on Twitter last night pretty fired up about this. Mm-hmm. And she made the point there's no comparing, like, you know, this slap versus serial sexual predations. Mm-hmm. But she said... If you want a microcosm of how Harvey Weinstein got away with what he did for as long as he did, just look at what happened. Here was someone who committed assault on national television Mm -hmm. and minutes later from the crowd that was aghast and uncomfortable got multiple standing ovations and the most sought after award for an actor in the world. Uh She's like, that is the culture here. And I know people were really mad at her for saying that, but I think it's an interesting observation. Think, oh, it's totally true because that's what Hollywood is. Everybody's engaged in a perpetual branding exercise where they want to be aligned with the winning side that's in power. I mean, everything about Harvey Weinstein's behavior was known two decades ago. Seth Rogen joked about it at the Oscars almost a dozen years ago when he said, oh, none of these four nominees for Best Actress will ever have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein again. They all knew, which is, again, why no one takes these people serious and they should stop sermonizing. That's the big thing. And Nikki Glaser is absolutely positively spot on. And while we're talking female comics, I thought Amy Schumer had some pretty funny lines. They could have did without the three-woman clunky presentation at the beginning. But I don't think – I'm going to go out on a limb and say no one will be talking about the upfront of this show ever again.
No, I mean, I don't know anything else that happened last night except for this. <laughs> I've, now, P. Diddy tells us that the feud is over, that they worked it out at the after party. Are you satisfied, Jimmy? No. Is the feud over? No. Is our I, nightmare over? I, as a guy, I've met P. Diddy a bunch. I actually know Chris Rock fairly well. I've opened for him and his brother a bunch of times. Uh, I don't know that it's over. I think that that's P. Diddy's way of just putting things to bed because he doesn't want to get asked about it and not have the answers. So he He's does like, the I've already addressed it. Yeah, we're good Asked here. and answered. Yeah. Asked and answered. Uh, Jimmy, very, very quickly, it just occurred to me to ask one more question. Mm-hmm. Chris Rock, we played the clip. After Will Smith walks away, he comes very close to making another joke. Yep. I would love to know what was in his head. He decided, you know what? I'm not going to go there. Let's de-escalate. <laughs> that joke was going to be nuclear, wasn't it? <laughs> that was the nuclear option because Will Smith had called for regime change, although the White House is saying it's not true. But there it was. Uh, it was And then Chris back. Rock walked it back. He walked it back before he said it. He pre-walked it back, which is the way you actually should do it. You just don't blurt it out. Very well so, said. So uh, applause. I am on Team Chris Rock in this, even though I thought the joke was a bit much. Uh, overall, I'm fully on board with him, and man, uh, bad, yep. bad look for Will Smith, and I'm sure there are people shouting right now at their radios about how wrong we are. Stop but, it. Oh, but we, we're up on a break, Thank so you. I mean, they can seethe through the commercial <laughs> break, but we got to say goodbye to Jimmy Fela, host of go. Fox Across America every weekday, noon to three on Fox News Radio. Jimmy, appreciate it. The best. Defund the joke, police. See you soon. <laughs> we'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show just getting started. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. We're going to have a great night uh, tonight. And for you people in Florida, we're going to have a gay night. Gay, gay. I'm Guy Benson. That was, I guess, another moment from the Oscars last night where they decided to say gay, betraying, I guess, a misunderstanding of what is actually in the bill in Florida that they're referencing. That is now law in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis signing the parental rights and education legislation earlier today. And I see already Disney has put out a statement condemning its passage and saying that they're going to work for it to be overturned. And I have some questions about that for Disney. I have some issues with the bill itself, now the law, as I've laid out on this program. I just wonder if Disney is offended by those things or about barring K-3 through students from getting sexual or gender identity instruction in classrooms, which is something I have no problem with, disallowing that. They didn't really specify. This is also Disney that happily does business in China where there's a genocide happening. I haven't seen any forceful condemnations from them on that. So I'm trying to pinpoint exactly what their corporate values are. Maybe we can talk about that with Governor Ron DeSantis. He'll be on this show tomorrow. His first time on the program, a must-hear interview. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on The Guy Benson Show Tuesday from Tallahassee. Mark your calendars. We'll be right back. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is always free. Well, as we were coming on the air today, I mentioned that President Biden was giving some remarks on his budget, which increases spending and taxes. He then took some questions and was going out of his way to try to explain how he wasn't fully walking back the thing that he said in Poland about Putin even though he was not advocating the thing that everyone seemed to immediately interpret his comments as advocating. Let's explain. On Saturday, President Biden gave a speech in Poland that was very harsh and critical about this Russian war in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin specifically. And for the most part, I agreed with most of what he said. And by his standards, it was pretty well and forcefully delivered. At the end of the speech, he said a sentence that we quickly learned was not in the text that he was reading. This was not in the prepared remarks. And immediately, just the Internet took fire. Just a blaze of questions and criticism. What did he say? What did he mean by that? It became literal headline news. The Washington Post, the New York Times, a bunch of papers overseas had leading stories about what Joe Biden, our president, said about Vladimir Putin at the very, very end of those remarks in Warsaw. Here's what he said in Cut 14. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. For God's sake, this man, meaning Putin, cannot remain in power. And journalists immediately started wondering, did Joe Biden just call for regime change in Moscow? Because that's what the words mean. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. That would say... That would suggest that the U.S. president believes that Putin cannot run that country anymore. By definition, that would be a push for regime change in some way. Whether it was aspirational language or an announcement of policy, that's what those words meant and what those words mean. Literally within minutes, the White House walked it back and cleaned it up. Said, oh, no, that, that is not what the president meant by that. That was not in the written text. He ad-libbed that line. And it didn't mean the thing that the meaning of the words would suggest. And look, let me make a few points on this. I think that it's almost inarguable that freedom-loving people who hate murderous dictators who kill civilians 
should all together believe, all of us, that the world would be better off without Vladimir Putin having access to his war machine and doing what he's doing in Ukraine. We'd be better off if there were a better leader in Russia and a better government in Russia. And that applies to a lot of other countries as well. So I don't disagree with the sentiment. However, there's also the absolute crucial reality that the words of a president matter a lot. President Trump got criticized all the time for not using his platform responsibly and saying, oh, he just spouts off and says things. And his critics say, oh, he's going to get us into World War Three from a tweet or some off the cuff remark. Well, here's Joe Biden, who is supposed to be sort of the reliable elder statesman who knows what he's doing, inserting on the fly extemporaneously a line that is the United States president, the most powerful person on earth, suggesting that a foreign leader should no longer be in that position anymore. I know the current spin, the current explanation is he was just saying personally his hope that Putin would no longer be in power just almost like theoretically. But it is not a change in U.S. policy. It is not an explicit call for regime change by the United States government. The thing is, you don't have that luxury when you're president of the United States and commander in chief of the United States Armed Forces. You don't have that luxury. And it would be one thing if Biden and his team had talked about this speech and Biden really felt strongly about saying something like this. He said, well, Mr. President, here are the downsides to it. This could be misinterpreted in Moscow. Is this how we want to do this? Is this the right venue for it? Are you the right messenger or what have you? And then if Biden had said overruled, I'm the president, I want to say it. And then they stood behind it. I think we'd be having a different conversation right now because some people said, oh, this is just like uh, Reagan. Reagan and the tear down that wall speech in Berlin, 1987, I believe. This is Biden's version of tear down that wall. No. There's a famous history behind that speech. Where Reagan really wanted that line in there and there was internal debate about whether or not to include it. And it was a policy choice made ultimately by the president himself, Reagan, to include it. And those words have now echoed through history because just a few years later, the wall did come down. And the Soviet Union collapsed. That was a choice being made in a thoughtful way. Biden ad-libbed this. And then immediately his own team cleaned it up and mopped it up and said, no, that's not what he meant. That's not our position. Josh Rogan of The Washington Post, who will join us later in today's show, tweeted this. The White House's contention is that he misspoke. If that's true, that's really bad. If he was being genuine, but his own staff is undermining his message, that's also really bad. Either way, a total muddle at the worst time and place. And I think it's pretty hard to argue against that analysis. And here's the other part of it. It plays into a pattern from President Biden. Not just over weeks or months, but just on this trip. This was not a long trip to Europe. He's already back. 
right? The comments that we have referenced now a few times, that was at the White House today. He's back home. Over the course of three days while he was in Europe, Biden made four statements that either completely contradicted his administration's own position on something or required an immediate climb down from one of his underlings to clarify that what he had said did not really mean what he said after all. So we've played a few different times, even last week, his new assertion, I guess, that the U.S. and West's policy of sanctions against Putin were not meant to deter Putin. They were never meant to deter Putin. They were never meant to deter Putin, he said. That was never our claim. And in fact, he went on, sanctions never deter. Then we went through and played you the audio tape of one person after another, from his vice president to his secretary of state to his press secretary, saying exactly the opposite in recent weeks. It was his official position of his White House that the sanctions were not only meant to deter, but would deter. They said, oh, never mind. That was never said. In fact, they never deter. And so they sent someone out there with a broom onto, onto TV and say, oh, well, you know, actually, well, what he really meant was. Then he had a few other instances before he said what he said about Vladimir Putin. For example, he was asked if the Russians use chemical weapons in Ukraine, what would the response be from NATO and the United States? And Biden said that we would respond, quote, in kind. And definitionally, that would mean that the U.S. or NATO would then deploy chemical weapons of our own against Russia. That was that's what a response in kind would be to a chemical weapons attack. And then they had to say, oh, that's he didn't mean in kind. That's that's not what he meant by saying that. Then he was talking to some of our troops, American troops stationed in Europe. And he indicated that they were about to see for themselves the horrors in Ukraine wrought by the Russians. And immediately people started wondering, uh, did he just spill the beans or let the cat out of the bag here that there's going to be some form of American boots on the ground in Ukraine? Because he talked about these soldiers, our soldiers, seeing for themselves what was happening there soon. So the White House say, oh, no, 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 he... That's not that's not what he meant. He he was not saying the president's been very clear. He had to reiterate. Nope, I've been clear. We're, we're not sending any of our people into Ukraine. And then came this line about how Putin cannot stay in power. And like within seconds, there were statements going out to journalists saying he didn't mean it that way. This was not a change in policy. This was not a call for regime change. So that's four, four separate examples of the president on this trip over the course of three days saying things that either totally undermined the official stance of his own team repeated over and over again or was so problematic that the people who support him within the administration frantically scrambled to clarify and walk back what he had just said. 
And look, I don't want to be disrespectful to the president. And we're in heavy times right now. We want the United States to do the right thing. We want the commander in chief to be on the top of his game, making good decisions, saying the right things. When he's made good decisions, I've said it. As I noted just earlier this segment, I thought a lot of the speech on Saturday was actually quite good and hit the right notes. Problem is the only thing, it's like the Oscars and the slap. No one else is talking about anything else that happened. How long is that broadcast? Like five and a half hours, it feels like, with the Academy Awards. Everyone's talking about the incident with Will Smith and Chris Rock, the slap, the assault, and the fallout. I'm just melding these two major stories. But I think there's there's a meaningful parallel here in terms of the attention that gets focused on one thing because that thing is really important and potentially super provocative. A lot of the good that was done in that address, in those remarks from Biden, was overwhelmed dramatically, overshadowed completely by an ad-libbed, tossed in line at the very end by the president, which has then resulted in days of cleanup and clarification. This is incoherent. This is amateur hour. This is the self-proclaimed adults in the room, right, the grown-ups being back in charge, really messing up. And the adult most in charge, the president of the United States, cannot be relied on to say things correctly. And that's not me saying something about the president that I don't support and didn't vote for. That's me analyzing and observing what the president's own team has effectively conceded and admitted. If the president were a reliable communicator of the president's own policies, he would not need someone with a bucket and a mop trailing him at all times to clean up everything that he says on basically a daily basis under heightened scrutiny and the glare of the international spotlight in the middle of a shooting war in Europe. I don't think it's too much to ask for more professionalism and precision from the president of the United States, whose words matter a lot in any context, but especially under these circumstances. Now, moments ago at the White House, we've had the walkbacks. We've had the clarifications. Biden now clarified again for himself. This was minutes ago in cut 32. Listen. Do you believe what you said, that Putin can't remain in power? Or do you now regret saying that because your government has been trying to walk that back? Did your words complicate matters? Well, yes, three different questions. I'll answer them all. Number one, I'm not walking anything back. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man, just, just brutality of half the children in Ukraine. I just come from being with those families 
And, uh, and so, uh, but I want to make it clear, I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel, and I make no apologies. Yeah, a personal opinion and moral outrage, I get it. I think a lot of us share that. But when a president speaks, there are policy strings attached, at least plausible ones. And so I think they've gone from he said it to they walked it back to he didn't mean it that way to I'm not walking anything back. I don't regret saying it, but it didn't mean the thing that people thought it meant. That's where they've landed. By the way, one more clip. This is cut 16. Here are the other walkbacks from that trip. Just listen to this montage. If chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would be. It would trigger a response in kind. The United States has no intention of using chemical weapons, period, under any circumstances. I did not say that, in fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. Look, before the war, obviously, we were laying out the consequences in pretty explicit detail with the hope that President Putin would take an alternative course. Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone. They have a lot of guts. And I'm sure you're observing it. And you're going to see when you're there. As I made clear, America forces are in Europe, not in Europe, to engage in conflict with Russian forces. American forces are here to defend NATO allies. But he told our men and women that we were going to see or they were going to see what was happening in Ukraine when you're there, meaning Ukraine. And then the walk back time after time, four times in three days. You'd think we could do a lot better than this. At least I think so. I continue to hope that this president gets big things right, especially when the stakes are high. But, man, that was a difficult montage to listen to as the spin continues. Quick break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I just saw that the Academy Awards, people who run the awards, I guess the Academy, they're launching an inquiry into what happened between Will Smith and Chris Rock. They're going to have an investigation. I think the investigation can be concluded by just watching the video. Just watch a minute of video. That's what happened. We all saw it. We don't need an inquiry. It's pretty obvious. People can take their sides, but it's not in dispute what happened. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Time for our middle hour of three here on the Guy Benson Show between three and six Eastern every weekday. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, always the same, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always on demand and free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com. Coming up in the next hour, Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor. He will be here. Looking forward to that conversation. Fox News alert. The Dow closes the day up 94 points, ending at 34,000. 955. 
Joining me now is General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and he is Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, always good to have you here. Welcome back. Yeah, great to be here with you and your audience. I want to start with this controversy that the president himself addressed just minutes ago on Saturday in Poland at the very end of his speech, which otherwise was pretty well received, but this was the dominant story coming out of it. Biden said this about the leader of Russia, cut 14. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principles, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. This man cannot remain in power. The White House minutes later said that was not a call for regime change. That was not a shift in U.S. policy. Biden today at the White House said he doesn't walk back what he said, but it was a personal opinion, a personal expression of moral outrage about what Putin is doing, but not a shift in U.S. policy officially. What do you make of this uh, fairly significant, in my view, blunder, even though I share that outrage that he feels about Putin? Yeah, I think we all do. I mean, the sad thing about this is that um, I thought it was his best speech that he's delivered in the month uh, since the war has started. Um, My one criticism of the content was I I wish he he had a little stronger identification with Ukrainians – Achieving victory and and pushing the Russians out of uh, out of their country, but uh, that aside, yeah, it, it was unfortunate um, that he entered it, that he used that statement, which we all feel. I mean, that, who wouldn't have that feeling? Certainly, Ukrainians feel that uh, as well. But there's no such thing as a a personal statement in a public speech by the president of the United States. I, uh, it, it, it's un, unfathomable that he actually concludes that he can do something like that. And it just, it caused such an unnecessary controversy. And, you know, and suddenly plays into Putin's hands. I mean, part of his strategy with his own people is that the West is expanding and threatening us. And that's how he cites all of the NATO expansion has taken place since the collapse of the Soviet Union, with uh, seven of those countries former Soviet republics moving uh, into NATO and and cites the, the United States as a major threat to security and stability of, of Russia. So this is going to really play significantly there. And, of course, it caused some confusion um, in the international community. And, and then having to walk that back just it was really unfortunate by his staff. And, and I thought they took the wrong approach to it. I thought Mark Thiessen this morning had the best approach to it. If you're going to walk it back, then walk it back in the context of the of the Russian people. The statement is made in that context. Um, but it's unfortunate. So the, the statement shouldn't have been made, and the walk back was clumsy, and I'm trying to be generous. General, what is the situation on the ground now in Ukraine in terms of military losses versus advancement? I know that in the north in particular – the Ukrainians in recent days have made gains. I saw one report today that at least the Ukrainians are claiming that they have recaptured one of their own cities, retaken one of their own cities. Meanwhile, in Mariupol, the Russians have just leveled the place and are on the brink of taking it over if they haven't already officially captured it. 
Who has the upper hand militarily right now? Well, there really is a stalemate, and and the Russians have been stopped in terms of the success of their offensive, certainly, their ground offensive. They're continuing their aerial bombardments and, and artillery bombardments where they can. In the north, uh, what has taken place there is they're reconstituting. So on the on the Kiev axis, the capital city axis, as well as on the Kharkiv axis, they're reconstituting forces. By that, I mean they're bringing in additional forces uh, and also equipment, and they're bringing in additional logistical units to help sustain the force, something they've had huge problems with uh, in the past. And on the Kiev, uh, on the, excuse me, on the Kiev axis, the act- they're bringing actually in the uh, the commander from the Eastern Military District of Russia. And he's setting up a headquarters in the vicinity of the Chernobyl uh, complex to be able to run this northern uh, sector. But the, it, it is it is clearly stalled there. And it, it remains to be seen whether, even though they're going through a reconstitution phase, Guy, whether they'll be successful. Because they have the same leadership. They have the same morale problems. They have the same discipline issues. And they then they have the same kind of leaders – uh, who do not delegate and give their tactical commanders the, the initiative. So I think we may get more of the same, but it remains to be seen. The, the Russians are talking about their priority is really in the, in the southeast, in the Donbass region. Um, and, but they haven't moved any forces from the north down to the Donbass region. And obviously— Well, and if they're moving they're saying, a commander to the outskirts of Kiev and Chernobyl, that's the opposite of what they said. I mean, I was very hopeful, based on what they said at that press conference on Friday from, uh, you know, the Russian military saying, we really just want to—we never meant to take Kiev at all. We never meant to take over the country. We just wanted the east, and that's what our focus is going to be. That seemed like an off-ramp, sort of a climb-down by them, which might lead to some sort of, you know, a, a peace agreement— or at least some of the pieces to put together. But if they're putting one of their top commanders up north now and they aren't really changing their actual deployment or behavior to align with the words that they said on Friday, I wonder what that says to you. Well, that was a false narrative propaganda for a domestic audience. I mean, the Russians lied through their teeth about everything, and they're lying through their teeth about what their military strategy is. They have not moved any of those northern forces and they certainly haven't moved any of them to reprioritizing the the east in the Donbass region. They're using that because that was their justification for coming into the war. They said that in the Donbass region, the Ukrainians were attacking them and committing genocide. And that was one of the reasons to come into the war. It wasn't the only denazification was another one, demilitarizing uh Ukraine was another one. But he's just fallen back on that. And what we have to see here um, is after Mariupol falls, uh, tragically, given all the horror that's taken place there, will the Russians be able to generate forces to be able to go west to Odessa or also north to be able to provide some assistance in the capital city of Kiev? That remains to be seen. Our analysis that the Institute for the Study of War is doing the 150th Motorized Rifle Division, which has got the mission in Mariupol, along with uh, naval infantry that was offloaded uh, on the beaches, they are taking significant casualties. So it remains to be seen after this whether they'll be able to generate forces or just hunker down like they're doing in the north.
uh, we'll see what, what, what transpires after that. Also, you mentioned it. The Ukrainians are conducting some limited uh, counterattacks and having some success with it in the vicinity of Kiev and in the vicinity of Kharkiv as well. And it, will they be able to do some of that in the south? I mean, the hope is they will and begin to take back uh, some territory. That also is something that bears watching, whether they can generate that kind of combat power like they have been in the north. You touched on there and referenced the huge heavy casualties that the Russians have been suffering, upwards of 15,000 potentially, according to NATO. Among them, so far, seven Russian generals and counting have been killed on the field of battle in Ukraine. Seven generals. This is not my area of expertise by any stretch, General Kane. It is yours. That seems like an extraordinary number to me, a very high number. And if that's right, if this is an extremely high number, how does that happen? How do the Russians lose in a month seven generals? Yeah, we never experienced anything like that in World War II, much less something uh, within a month of combat or in the Vietnam War and the Korean War. Uh, and certainly nothing like that uh, in the, the 9-11 wars. Here's, here's, there's two reasons why this is happening, and it's, it's, and it's extraordinary. One is um, the Russians are not able to operate on their secure nets. The, the Ukrainians are jamming their secure nets. These are tactical operational nets where one unit is talking to its headquarters, etc. So what are they doing? They're gone to non-secure radios and also cell phones. And the Ukrainians have been able to pinpoint, as a result of that, because they're talking in the clear, they've been able to pinpoint where these generals are. So that's one reason. they got a fix on, on their location. The second is the generals are much closer to the fight. There's huge pressure being put on them because of the lack of success on the ground. So the generals have been put closer to their tactical units to push them forward because they are getting combat refusals, not just from individuals, but from units. And they're down there pushing those units forward, obviously adding to the risk. Those are the two reasons that we have right now, you know, for why that is happening. And you, you're absolutely right. It is extraordinary. Last question here, General Keene. There's this hope that talks are going to happen in Turkey, although I guess some of the Ukrainian negotiators have fallen ill. There's indication that they might have been poisoned. I think there's a, a Russian oligarch who also seems like he may have been poisoned. That would be FSB fingerprints all over that, potentially. But let's just say these negotiations really begin in earnest in Turkey we all want to see the war end. We all want to see the suffering end. We want to see the outcome be reasonable and not reward Putin for what he's done. But there's also a realistic understanding here that there'll have to be some sort of concession, rather, uh, if if there is going to be some sort of, you know, adjudicated end to the war. Is there a risk for the Ukrainians to put too much stock in these negotiations and maybe stop pressing whatever advantage they might have right now, giving the Russians an opportunity to reconstitute their troops if, in fact, the negotiations aren't serious or they're just kind of a ruse to buy time. How would you consider and weigh that that risk assessment of 
Is it worth having these conversations and putting stock in them? Can we walk and chew gum at the same time if you're the Ukrainians? What do you think the Russians are actually trying to achieve here? I know that's a lot to throw at you, but I mean, I'm I'm hopeful but skeptical is my take from where I sit. Yeah, I mean, their, their history of negotiations during conflict um, is that they always do it. So it, it's part of their pattern. And they they also, uh, at some point, push for ceasefires, which they immediately violate. And they actually use the ceasefire to, to regain position advantage. Uh, so, the, listen, the Ukrainians are very much aware. Uh, the Russians are involved in negotiations almost from the outset. It plays to their home audience that they're looking for diplomatic solutions. They don't want to take life unnecessarily. This is another false narrative that they create. So we we cannot get too optimistic about these negotiations. Um, we have to be realistic about what the Russian history of these negotiations uh, uh, truly are. The best, and the Ukrainians know this, the best thing to help them in negotiations is success on the battlefield. That is the best leverage uh, that they're going to have. And, and they fully are aware of that. And as we are having this conversation, there are screen grabs on Fox News Channel of a speech from the mayor of Irpin, at least a statement from the mayor saying that the Ukrainians have taken that city back. And there are reports that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, says we're open to some situation where we'd be neutral in the east, in the Donbass, and we could maybe move forward there in a potential peace settlement. We shall see. But I think... Skepticism is certainly warranted, General, for the reasons that you just laid out. Our guest is General Jack Keane, retired four-star general chairman of the Institute of the Study of War, and he is senior strategic analyst here at Fox News. And we always appreciate your insights into all of this, General. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on, Guy. I always enjoy talking to you and your audience. Appreciate it. Yes, we always like having you here, and we'll have you back soon, I'm sure. We will step aside briefly, take a quick break, and we will return in just mere moments. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Earlier in the show last hour, I mentioned a statement put out by Disney Corporation reacting to the decision today by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to sign into law the Parental Rights in Education bill that passed the legislature, and we've talked about it here. I've given my analysis. I, on balance, actually oppose the bill, now the law, for a number of reasons that I've laid out. But I'm not against the number one controversy, seemingly, within it, at least the thing that most people are arguing about, and now is being polled, where the American people are largely on my side and on Governor DeSantis's side on the issue of barring, banning classroom instruction on sexual and gender identity for five, six, seven and eight year olds, K through three. So Disney has written out this statement that they released to the press. Florida's HB 1557, also known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, should never have passed. And should never have been signed into law. Our goal as a company is for this law to be repealed, 
by the legislature or struck down in the courts, and we remain committed to supporting the national and state organizations working to achieve that. We are dedicated to standing up for the rights and safety of LGBTQ plus members of the Disney family, as well as members of the community in Florida and across the country. That's the end of their statement. And I'd be very interested to know if the powers that be at Disney, like does the CEO of Disney, does the board at Disney, do they oppose the provision that I just mentioned? Making sure that K through three students in that age range do not get sexual and gender identity instruction in classrooms. Are they against that or are they for that? Because a majority of Americans are for that provision. A large majority, based on a recent poll that we talked about last week, of Floridians, particularly Floridian parents, support that provision. Disney is a company that caters to parents and their children. Now, if they share some of my other concerns that I have laid out here on the show and at townhall.com and on Twitter as well, I mean, I share those concerns. I would. But this is sort of a very vague statement of opposition broadly to the whole bill. I would like to see parts of it clarified. The main thing that we're talking about here, I would not want to see repealed on K through three. And again, Disney runs theme parks and does tons of business in China where there's an act of genocide on. They thank the CCP for letting them film in the province where the genocide is happening. But they really are committed to human dignity, aren't they, at Disney? You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are midway through this Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is always on demand and always free of charge. With me here in studio in Washington, D.C., in our Tony Snow studios at the D.C. Bureau, is Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, author of They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste. And you can catch his podcast, Jason in the House, on Fox News Radio at foxnewsradio.com or foxnewspodcast.com. At Jason in the House is his Twitter handle. It's great to see you here. Hey, it's good to see you in person. Let's talk about the president Some new job approval numbers out just yesterday from NBC News. They've got him at his lowest point yet, at 40% approval among U.S. adults, 55% disapproval. We had Karl Rove on the show on Friday just sort of talking through some of the reasons why it doesn't seem like this president has been benefiting from a rally around the flag effect. I know we are not directly at war, but the world has really rallied around Ukraine, certainly, The American people are overwhelmingly united on this front. Biden is the leader of the free world, and yet his numbers here at home really haven't budged almost at all. I wonder what your theory is on that. Well, I think you're right. He goes overseas. It's usually the time where America rallies behind the flag. They want the president to do well. There is atrocity that I think unanimously in the United States, we're we're sympathetic to what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, egregiously attacked, wrongly attacked. But then the president goes over first and makes so many gaffes that you have to walk him back. And, and and that was preceded by Kamala Harris going over. You know, her first trip overseas, she's making gaffes. It, it just shows and reaffirms, I think, a lot of people's concern that you just don't have the A-team out there 
uh, representing the country, leading the world in the direction that they need to. And and the price of gas continues to go up and and, you know, back home, things are more expensive and all, all of those things. None of them seem to have a plausible solution to it. And you you have very poor communicators in Kamala Harris and and Joe Biden. Yeah, the communication is a problem. The policy, certainly here at home, is the bigger problem. Right. They're in total denial about this stuff. And the president's put out his new budget. They want to raise taxes. They want to raise spending. They've already spent just a blizzard of money. They're telling us that they're out of money on COVID relief and they need more. I mean, it's it's a pretty astounding thing to watch them operate right now. And the country is not impressed. You know, as I said, 40 percent approval, lowest ever in the NBC numbers on the economy, because he actually got a bump in the NBC numbers on COVID because it's mostly a non-issue at the moment for most Americans. Also on foreign policy, he's still majority disapproved, but he's gotten a little bit of a bump there. But on the economy, he is underwater by 30 points, 3-0. And AP has a new poll out. His disapproval on the economy is right in that same area, 68% disapprove. I mean, these are dreadful numbers. It's 65% of the AP poll, just dreadful numbers on the number one issue for Americans. And, and the president tries to blame Putin, Putin, Putin on all things. America's not buying it. And your numbers don't get that bad unless you're losing independence and your own base. Because Biden was billed as a man with the plan. He was going to tackle COVID. He was going to do these things. But it's painfully obvious this far into the presidency, coming up on the midterms, that he doesn't have a plan and that Democrats don't have an agenda. And so he introduces this budget, which is just feckless. It's not going anywhere. And to say, hey, we're going to increase taxes. That'll, you know, we're just one good tax increase away, guy, from making this economy work. Yes, that doesn't fly. I would say that the Democrats do have an agenda. It's just a bad one that most people don't want, right? That's their problem. Yeah, they do. You're right. They have an agenda. It just doesn't solve the problem. As you start to look ahead to November, right, I think it's dangerous for Republicans to start counting chickens because you never know, right? And you really do need your people to turn out. Ideally, the other side is a little depressed, and then you try to win over independents. Right now, it looks like all of those things are happening. The Republican base is as fired up as they've ever been. I'd say there are some parallels to 2010 right now. The Democrats are just sleepwalking for the most part. I saw in the NBC numbers that young voters in particular are totally tuned out of this election, which would be a nightmare for the Democrats. And independents have swung for sure – rightward ever since President Trump left office and people are watching what Joe Biden is doing. What do you think the Republicans need to do between now and October to solidify or maybe build on their advantage? Because by no means is this a done deal, but it's looking pretty precarious for the Democrats right now. Yeah, you just don't see a way that they're going to to escape and get out of this. But let's never underestimate the Republicans' ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Right. Right? They're pretty good at doing that. Um, I don't think Republicans should overplay their hand on the Supreme Court justice and you know uh, the selection and the uh, the vote. I think they're I think they're playing that about right, asking tough questions, probing her 
her um, her votes or her uh, decisions as it relates to child predators and those types of things. Um, but I think the Republicans also need a proactive plan. They need to be able to say, we are going to be the adults in the room. We can come forward. This is what we would do should we be placed in charge um, and what we would do to help solve the nation's biggest problems. And I think they've done some of that, well, but and, I but think they is, need to do a lot more. And this is that. a controversy even within the party because Rick Scott, who's running the NRSC, right. the senator from Florida, he put out – I think an 11-point plan about what the Republicans would do if they take back the Senate. And one of the bullet points was, well, we want to actually raise taxes on some people who aren't paying any tax right now. And Mitch McConnell's like, ixnay on that idea. Like, let's let's not give the Democrats something to attack. What's the balancing act between being for something and giving people something to vote for beyond just we're not the other side, although that might be enough, and then not – opening yourself up needlessly to specific policy attacks based on ideas that not everyone in the party even supports. Well, you know, I, I ran a few campaigns uh, successfully myself, and I've always believed that you put principle above policy. So if you attack it and say, these are the principles that we believe in, then all the policy will fall naturally behind. I still don't think the Republicans in a united front have been able to say, here are the principles that we believe in and by which we would govern. And no matter the issue that comes before us, this is the lens by which we would look at it. I think there's a way to get that and not make it so watered down that it's so generic that it means nothing. Um, but I, that would give the, the country a sense of the direction that they want to go. I think part of the challenge, quite frankly, is there's a lot of assumption that Kevin McCarthy would be the next Speaker of the House, but I don't think that that is done in, in a big deal either. Really? I think there, I think there's still a lot of discussion as to who else would it be. Well, I don't know that there would be a plausible other person to do that, but I would think that going into the summer, this is my theory, is my guess, Democrats would really ratchet up the the uh, attacks the personal attacks on Kevin McCarthy and try to make it personal about him. Um, and I still think you have a Freedom Caucus who is not necessarily united behind uh, uh, behind Kevin McCarthy. And those types of things tend to, you know, c- coming out of uh, Labor Day, those are the types of things that will cause people to think and scratch their head. And that's exactly what the Democrats want to do. But that's also precisely why I think they will try to do that. Is McCarthy anywhere close to the lightning rod that Nancy Pelosi is, though? Oh, no. No, no. But I, I'm just saying, given the past, depending on how tight the margin is, I think there are a lot of people, particularly the, the, the Freedom Caucus, that have history there. Do you think there's someone that you can think of right now who would be maybe better, who would unite the party more? Someone else in leadership, Scalise? Or? Uh, Scalise certainly would be in, in, in that top tier, but I think Kevin McCarthy's forte is he's raised the most amount of money. He knows most about the people and their families, and, and he's working really hard, and he's having great success. So success breeds more success, and I think there will be a, a general feeling that, that, that McCarthy should be given a shot. But when we went through this before... It, it didn't happen so smoothly, smoothly because the Jim Jordans and Andy Biggs and, and at the time, Mark Meadows of the world said, mm, maybe not so fast. Jason Chaffetz, you brought up the Supreme Court fight, and we know mm-hmm. that there'll be a confirmation vote coming up early next month. And there has been just some mind-blowing gaslighting on this overall process from the left, from the media. I did a monologue here last week 
about the Washington Post editorial claiming that Judge Jackson was treated worse by the Republicans than <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh was in 2018, which is just, again, just totally – you're laughing because it is laughable. And I did a monologue. That's up on YouTube if you want to find it. It's got more than 150,000 views already. I think it's resonating with people. Cory Booker, who made a big show at both the Kavanaugh hearing and now the Jackson hearing, he was on CNN. And he's just so disappointed in his colleagues this time around. Here's what Booker said, his special alternative history in Cut 30. What was unfortunate in, in the room uh, for me was that uh, she was getting attacks that were roundly criticized, even by people on the right, as being uh, beyond the pale. Um, But yet again, (laughs) you know, I I got a chance to witness firsthand what I think many people in America can relate to, is when you show up in a room qualified, when you show up in a room uh, with extraordinary expertise and credentials, um, uh, there are a lot of Americans who know that hurt, uh, that you are still going to be treated in a way Uh, that does not respect you fully. And it it was something that was not surprising to many Americans, uh, but did poke at a a familiar hurt for a lot of us. And I think that uh, even despite that, uh, she shined in that moment as well as throughout the hearings. Well, I think one of these people that he's describing that might not feel fully respected despite being qualified is... Brett Kavanaugh, I think that's something that he might relate to. It might resonate with him. That poke might have hurt him because he was basically called a gang rapist by people like Cory Booker, who said that what the Republicans did last week was, quote, beyond the pale. This is the guy who went out of his way to break Senate rules during the Kavanaugh circus, bragged that he broke the Senate rules just over and over again. He was very proud of himself for that. He was part of this character assassination effort against Kavanaugh, and now – He sort of is intoning in these grave tones how sad things were last week. And he's sort of the statesman here who's so disappointed in his Republican colleagues, Jason. I mean, this guy, really, of all people? Yeah, of all people. Look, I I am I uh, uh, Senator Booker, who is there on the committee, uh, has every right to uh, his comments and his perception. It just sounds like he wrote this before anything ever happened. No matter what happened, he was going to say this. I think it's... And as if 2018 did not happen. Yeah, exactly. The the two. And it it comes with no credibility. This is where they gain no points. And um, it it just makes a mockery of yourself. It discredits the individual who says it. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But this is going to be a fairly smooth and benign uh, confirmation hearing. I it think, already has been. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the serious questioning, and I think it should have been questioned. I think the one that was out of line, quite frankly, was Senator Durbin to continue to interrupt somebody while they're in, involved and engaged in questioning. I think, you know, when I was chairman of a committee, I let that member have that time. That's their time. And rarely did anybody step out of bounds. They may have talked about things that I didn't want to talk about, but that doesn't mean that you get to interrupt. It's that senator's time. They're on the committee. They get to ask it. But Booker's comments are just absurd. They're not in context. Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, as he just referenced, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee. You can follow him on Twitter at Jason in the House. He used to be. But it's good to have you back here in D.C. at least. Good to see you. Yeah, good to be here in person. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm kind of glad I left. (laughs) (laughs) I, I can't blame you for that. I feel like sometimes people leave and they want their old job back. 
you are not one of those people. You're perfectly happy doing your I'm own thing. Just fine. Just right. fine right there. Jason Chaffetz on the Guy Benson Show here in person. Great to see you, sir. And we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor, will be here coming up in the next hour. You don't want to miss that. In the meantime, picking up on a thread that we began in the last segment with Jason Chaffetz on this Supreme Court fight, the current confirmation process of Judge Brown Jackson. Senator Ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska, is a member of that Judiciary Committee. He had, I would say, an amiable series of exchanges with the nominee during the hearing last week. And they were substantive, and she seemed to have a pretty good rapport with him back and forth. And he put out a statement, Sass did, on Friday night, announcing that he was going to vote no on her confirmation. He explained why. He said, among other things in the statement, Judge Jackson is an extraordinary person with an extraordinary American story. We both love this country, but we disagree on judicial philosophy, and I am sadly unable to vote for this confirmation. Judge Jackson has impeccable credentials and a deep knowledge of the law, but at every turn this week, she not only refused to claim originalism as her judicial philosophy, she refused to claim any judicial philosophy at all. And he went to cite in this statement a few of the cases that she had ruled on as a judge, including one in particular where she was overruled by a higher court as having exceeded her authority. And he says this is a pattern. He concludes the statement, I am grateful for Judge Jackson's service and wish her and her family the best as she takes her seat on the court. But I am unable to consent to the nomination. So this is about as magnanimous as you're going to get in the process of someone saying, I'm still voting no on a particular question. And this statement, this announcement from Sass just touched off an avalanche of fury on the left. I mean, people were going crazy over the weekend about him. Some journos, various Democratic operatives. He was being called everything from a partisan hack to a racist to a sexist. I mean, you name it. All the normal stuff. It's funny because these people are always bellowing about putting country over party. And when Sass did that in their minds, when he voted to convict President Trump on the second impeachment, that just doesn't really matter or count anymore. You always have to put country over party every single time. And what they usually mean by that is party over party. They want the Democratic Party line over the Republican Party line. And they conflate what Democrats want with what the country demands. And they really, I think, betray the cynicism when they go after people on their own side, whether it's Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, for occasionally wandering off the path of Democratic orthodoxy and voting not along with the party, that's never framed as voting for the country over the party. That's bad. That's wrong. That's worthy of a primary challenge. That's killing people. That's you know, all their normal histrionics. And so the case plays out again in this episode where Ben Sass is simply doing what the vast majority of all Senate Democrats did throughout the entire Trump presidency. 94% of Senate Democrats voted against Neil Gorsuch. 98 of them voted against Brett Kavanaugh. 100% of them voted against Amy Coney Barrett. And now they're horrified that someone would vote against a Supreme Court nominee 
that he admits is qualified and nice and smart, but he has disagreements with them. That's just not okay. It's fine when the Democrats do it. Barack Obama himself advocated it when he was a senator. Oh, but when it's a Republican playing by those exact same rules, it's an outrage. And he must be a bigot and someone who hates America. Oh, it's just so exhausting from these people. I don't think Sass is going to lose any sleep over it because it's not serious. It's clownish hackery. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up right after this. Don't go anywhere. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour on this Monday. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in to The Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 Eastern, every weekday. That's when we air live. Around the clock, it's available on demand for free at GuyBensonShow.com on our free podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour, the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious. We recommend it. If you haven't tried it yet, you can find out more at thelongdrink.com. They continue to expand. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Programming note, we'll be doing the show tomorrow and Wednesday from Tallahassee, Florida. And on the program tomorrow, one-on-one with Governor Ron DeSantis, his first ever appearance on this show. Governor DeSantis will be here for a few segments, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. You will not want to miss it. Joining us now is Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor under President Trump. And, Mr. Ambassador, it's so good to have you back here on the show. Great to be with you, Guy. Thank you for having me. I want to start with the president's speech on Saturday. I thought overall it was a pretty good speech. I agree with much of it. And then the ad-lib line at the very end that was immediately walked back seemed to call for regime change in Russia. The White House said... Minutes later, that's not what the president meant. Earlier today, he said that again. He reiterated, no, no, there was no change in policy that I was advocating. It was just an expression, a personal expression of moral outrage. I wonder what you thought of the speech about that line and how the White House has been dealing with that line. Well, look, the speech said a lot of things that, uh, as Republicans, we we would like. The the problem is the, the words don't match the action. So, we haven't had a peace or strength uh, foreign policy or national security policy over the past year and a half, and we've reaped the the you know, we've, we've reaped what we've sown on that front. So, instead of laying out the sanctions that we would have put in place if Putin invaded Ukraine, we were ambiguous, and so he thought he would get another slap on the wrist and thought he'd be you know welcomed into Ukraine. Instead of punishing Putin for the the invasion, we've done half measure sanctions. We've exempted oil and gas from those sanctions. And I mean, what else does Russia sell? I mean, when's the last time, Guy, you went on Amazon and said, hey, I want to get that newest thing from Russia? Like, mm-hmm. never, uh, because they sell oil and gas. We've accepted those sales, and so there's no real you know, the detriment to Putin. And, and so, look, the, the, the words of the speech were fine, but we've got, we've got to get tough. We've got to rebuild our military. 
Uh, the defense budget is up, but it's not up. Uh, it's increased by 4%, but inflation is going up by 7 to 10%. So we, we, we've got to get really serious if we're going to put actions that, behind the words that are, that are mentioned in the speech. And then at the end when he said, for God's sake, this man cannot be in power, cannot stay in power, I think a lot of people immediately heard that is a call for a foreign leader to no longer be in power. He said, no, that was just me personally expressing revulsion about what's happening. And I think we all share that revulsion, Mr. Ambassador. But when a president says things like that, it's different than when someone like, you know, you or me would say something, you know, exactly the same words. It is a very different situation, right, in terms of the source and the position of, in this case, Joe Biden saying what he said. Well, it has. There are two issues that, that come into play here, Guy, and, and you're you're right. The first is how does the foreign government react to that? And you're feeding into Vladimir Putin's suspicions and paranoia about uh, the U.S. wanting to remove him from power by by those sorts of statements. Now, there there could be some benefit uh, from that statement because we put a little risk uh, into the uh, calculation for the Russian planners that up until now haven't had any risk because all we've told them is what we're not going to do. We're not going to put in troops. Mm-hmm. We're not going to uh, give the, the Ukrainians MIGs. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We take the risk out of the equation for the Russians as they plan what their next move is. So so Biden, in, to, to some extent, may have, have helped us a little bit. But then when it's immediately walked back by Jake Sullivan five minutes later, uh, you know, uh, we, we look like we, we we're not – straight on our policy, and, and then we remove the risks that we just inserted into the equation. We remove, we remove it. And remember, this happened before. Uh, President Biden has said several times that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if the Chinese invaded. Uh, you know, that, that puts some ambiguity into the calculation for the Chinese planners. Uh, you know, are they going to face Virginia-class submarines in the Strait of Taiwan? Are they going to face uh, American Ticonderoga-class cruisers with 120 uh, vertical launch cells? Uh, are they going to face American aircraft carriers? Uh, that was good. But as soon as President Biden said that, immediately uh, Jake runs out to the sticks or to the podium and, and walks it back. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's not a good way to, to, to run a, uh, a country's diplomacy. But, but the president's instincts, both on Russia and on, Taiwan, on Ukraine and Taiwan, are probably good instincts that many Americans would agree with. Have you been surprised, Mr. Ambassador, by the extent of the failure, tactically and strategically, by the Russians and the Russian military? I mean, it really feels like this is a hollowed-out force that is weaker and more inept than I would suspect a lot of people would have guessed, and yet it is playing out day in and day out. I wonder if that sort of exposure unto itself is one of the biggest humiliations and blunders, mistakes of this war from a Russian perspective. Yeah, look, it's a uh, it's a huge blunder, and and the uh, the Russian army has been exposed for uh, being far less capable than its adversaries, and and I include its adversaries, the Chinese, not just us, even though they're, according to Xi Jinping, limitless partners. Uh, I've been saying this for some time. The Chinese have always said that they're going to recover every piece of territory that was taken from China during the century of, humili- century of humiliation. And, and the largest area of land that was taken from the Chinese, it's not Taiwan, uh, which, which has never been governed by the Communist Party of China, it's, uh, or, or the, the Chinese for, for many, many years. It's the, the, the land that was taken by Russia in the 1865 Treaty of Peking. And, 
1865. He kind of played out over a couple of years. That treaty, by the way, is in the in the museum in in Taipei. I was taken with them by the nationalists when they when they escaped China and, and set up government in in, Ta- in the island of Taiwan. But there are thousands and thousands of miles of of Chinese purported Chinese territory that the Russians control. And Xi Jinping has got to be looking at the the performance of the Russian army in Ukraine and thinking that's mine hmm. for the taking. And uh, you know maybe he's going to start thinking instead of going to Taiwan, maybe he goes into eastern Russia. By the way, the uh, uh, the Russians have, have pulled a lot of their troops out of the east and put them into Ukraine. So that that border and that that, uh, that defensive area, which they've fought wars with China in the past, is wide open for the Chinese to take. So we'll have to see what Xi Jinping does there. But that the the, the exposure of the the Russian army for being uh, as incapable as it's proved to be is uh, is a real problem for Putin and for the Russian state. I'll come back to Putin in a second, but that's very interesting what you just said about the Chinese and Xi. You have been talking about the threat of China and the Chinese Communist Party now for for years. It was a real point of emphasis in the Trump administration in which you served. And you just at least touched on one of the potential answers to this question. Maybe the Chinese start saying, hey, if we want some more land and some more territory, if we want to expand our footprint, maybe we uh, take advantage of this sclerotic neighbor up north here and just take that back. What are they going to do? They can't beat Ukraine. They're certainly not going to beat us. They, They can't they're, they're hugely depleted. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard that anywhere before. What else do you think Xi Jinping and the Politburo in Beijing are learning as they watch what's happening in Ukraine, not just about the Russians necessarily, although that's a big piece of it and very interesting, but the West, the resolve of the West? What do you think they are watching most closely in Beijing? I think there are three things that they're watching. First is how does NATO respond and how does the West respond? And and what I've been advocating is that we use uh, the full strength of U.S. diplomacy and Western diplomacy to bring Finland and, and to bring Sweden, which are both very capable countries, into NATO. Uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin tried to weaken NATO by invading Ukraine. He's got to end up with a stronger NATO on his on the Eastern Front than, than he had before, and that, that'll punish him. The Chinese will see that and, and worry about what would happen if they attempted to invade Taiwan. Would that turn the quad? Would that turn India, Australia, Japan, and the U.S., which is a, a strong diplomatic relationship that we call the quad, would that turn it into a nascent NATO, maybe even including countries like Thailand and the Philippines and Vietnam, uh, and strengthen the alliance? So I think they're watching how NATO responds. Number two, they're watching the Ukrainians fight back with stingers and javelins knowing that those uh, weapon systems can be easily imported into Taiwan and we should be getting them there right away and watching what a hard time the Russians are having and taking that into account when when they think about invading Taiwan. Will the Taiwanese fight the way the Ukrainians did? And, and these lower-tech uh, systems, whether they're drones or, or javelins or, or stingers, uh, can really take a lot out, out of a uh, even a, a higher uh, end and, and a bigger uh, invading army. And keep in mind the Chinese have to, to go across to over 100 miles of ocean to get to Taiwan, unlike the uh, the Russians who can drive into Ukraine. And then third, I think they're looking at the economic issue. Is is the West going to be serious about the sanctions? Are we going to turn the half-measure sanctions into full sanctions? Uh, so far, Russia is taking a real hit to their economy because of the sanctions that have been imposed so far. And... Um, the Chinese don't have a big enough domestic market, and, and China, Iran, and Russia together 
uh, aren't a big enough market for the Chinese to, to grow their economy if they're cut off from the economies of the free world. So I think the stronger the sanctions against Russia, the more impact that's going to have on China, because China does not want to be de decoupled from the West, from, from Europe, from North and South America, from, from Africa, from India. And so, so the more countries we can bring on to, to really impose economic costs on Russia, uh, that'll be something that deters the Chinese and in, in going after Taiwan if they think it, they'd have a similar result. Trump National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. On Putin, we've discussed what President Biden said about preferring to see him not in power anymore. Just to linger on that for a second, or I guess return to it, do you get a sense based on what's happening and how badly things are going for the Russians? Is Putin's grip on power that has been pretty ironclad now for years – is it loosening? Is there a cabal within the Kremlin that might be whispering about things that they haven't maybe for a long time, if ever? You know, we just don't know. And, and from open source intelligence it's, it's in, and things you read in the papers and seeing the, the news, you don't know. Uh, but keep in mind, Putin is a very uh, clever, savvy former KGB operator. I've said he's not, not someone to be admired because of those skills, his skills that he learned in the KGB. Uh, but he is somebody to be taken very seriously, and, and he's engaged in purge after purge of, of anyone that could uh, challenge him. He's got K former KGB generals in, in power in all the key places, from Nikolai Patrushev, the, their national security advisor, to all throughout their government. So uh, my guess is as a former KGB officer, he's more concerned about this issue than, than most other leaders and, and is skilled in, in protecting himself from a, a coup by the military or a uh, – uh, an uprising in, in the streets. I mean, you've seen what he's done with Navalny. He'll probably never get out of the gulag. Uh, so I think I think Putin's probably been pretty skilled at uh, at protecting himself, using uh, everything he learned in the KGB and using all the former KGB officers who surround him to protect the uh, uh, to protect the throne, so to speak. Finally, Ambassador O'Brien, just a few days ago, there was this uh, missile test by the North Koreans and Kim Jong Un. They put out sort of this wild surreal hype video about it um, and it's easy to laugh at it but it's also extremely serious and scary when you think a little bit deeper about it on the other hand there are now reports that maybe they put on a big show and it was not a successful missile test after all even though they claimed it was your reaction to that development yeah you know it's hard not to chuckle when you see kim jong-un walking out with the, the, the shades on and uh yeah <laughs> and the music video type uh, production of the thing with the music in the background and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, you know, they're, they, they've, they've certainly got their own style in uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Uh, but, uh, look, we've got to be careful about it. We were able to uh, to prevent these sorts of tests, the ICBM test, and the nuclear test uh, during our administration, President Trump. There, there are kind of two ways to do it, either military pressure uh, or you can use diplomacy and heavy sanctions. We use the diplomacy and heavy sanctions with the North Koreans knowing that President Trump would be willing to use a military option if he needed to to protect the country. So we've got to get back to that sort of approach with the North Koreans now. And again, a combination of them understanding that we won't we won't brook any sort of conduct that would put the U.S. at risk, especially the the continental United States, as well as Alaska and Hawaii, uh, at risk uh, of, of a nuclear attack by North Korea. Uh, they've got to understand that, that we're serious about it, and there's, there's real metal behind that. 
and uh, and then we ought to see if there's some way to, to diplomatically engage with the North Koreans to uh, uh, to see if we can come to a, some sort of resolution, you know, short of, of armed mm. conflict. Well, wide-ranging interview there with lots of topics covered in just a bit of time, so we do appreciate it. Ambassador Robert O'Brien, National Security Advisor under President Trump, thank you so much, and we hope to talk again soon. Thanks, my friend. Take care, Guy. Likewise, and have a great day, and we will, I hope, get him back here because that's just really good, crucial insight. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Right when we were coming on the air earlier today, top of the 3 o'clock hour Eastern, President Biden was giving a short speech about his new budget. By the way, $5.8 trillion is what he's proposing. Just a few years ago, the annual budget was $4 trillion, and that seemed like a huge number. 5.8 now is what he's proposed. Higher taxes, more spending, on and on it goes. Then he took questions, and he was trying to sort of walk this line on what he said about Vladimir Putin in Poland on Saturday. And one of the questions that he took was from our colleague Peter Ducey here at Fox News. Peter asked him a question that was really the basis of my monologue, my point, in the first hour of the show, right around 3.30. I did a whole monologue about it, about the four different times over the course of three days that Biden either undermined his own administration's policy or had statements that were walked back immediately by his own team. So on the walkbacks, Ducey asked him about it, and Biden just denied that they ever happened. Cut 33. This was earlier today. Are you worried that other leaders in the world are going to start to doubt that America is back if some of these big things that you say on the world stage keep getting walked back? What's getting walked back? It made it sound like, just in the last couple of days, uh, it sounded like he told U.S. troops they were going to Ukraine. It sounded like he said it was possible the U.S. would use a chemical weapon. And it sounded like you were calling for regime change in Russia. And we know none of the three occurred. None of the three. Occurred. None of the three. None of the three occurred. Now, the problem from Biden's perspective is all three of them occurred. They were all on tape. We've played them for you here on the show. He can say none of them occurred. We all just watched them. And they're all recorded for posterity. So he can deny and question the premise of what Ducey was asking, but it was a correct question based on a correct premise. And we have the receipts. Weak, weak stuff from Biden. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. With us now is Josh Rogan, columnist at The Washington Post, author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. He's on Twitter at Josh Rogan. Good to have you here, sir. Great to be with you. I want to get your take on the president's trip over to Europe. He just got back yesterday. There was obviously a lot at stake on this journey for the president, a lot of big meetings, the big speech in Poland, 
I've given some of my thoughts earlier in the show. I wonder what you made of it. Right. Well, I think there's two things. One is the gas, the, the, where he accidentally said the quiet part out loud and revealed that actually we do, in fact, envision a world where Vladimir Putin doesn't rule Russia and murder people all day, right? That's a, the better outcome. We all know it. For some reason, we have this weird contention that we can't say it out loud, but Putin already knows it. Joe Biden knows it. Everybody knows that Obviously, our goal, while we're not advocating regime change by force, we're not advocating intervention. But, of course, if he's a war criminal killing people, of course, we would think, yeah, we, it, he shouldn't be in power. That seems pretty obvious. But saying that out loud is now the biggest gap in Joe Biden's career, apparently. So that's one thing. So that's unfortunate because I think that this is Joe Biden speaking honestly, and now he's getting punished for it. And it's getting, you know, it's undermining the bigger message. And that's the really important part of the trip, which is how do we win the war? And in all this discussion over the semantics and the deterrence and the reactions and the press statements, what gets lost is what the point of the whole trip was, which is the point of the whole enterprise is how to stop the Russian attack on Ukraine. And, you know, that means arming the Ukrainians, if you're asking me, and that means getting the allies to do more that if you're asking me, and that means actually giving them the things that they need that they're begging for. So I think on both of those fronts, it was in a way, you know, competent, but in another way, a huge missed opportunity. In the speech and that ad-libbed line that you talked about, which is now widely described as a big gaffe, how do you think things might be different if the White House had just stood behind what he said, saying, look, you know, he's not saying the U.S. is going to foment anything. We're not talking about forcibly removing anyone from power, but absolutely it is the position of the president and the United States that things would be better off if Vladimir Putin were not in charge of Russia, if they kind of stood by it and backed it up as opposed to immediately walking it back. Because it's hard to say it wasn't a gaffe when they contradicted him seconds later, right? I just wonder if there was any thought given to not undermining the boss. Well, I, I, well, by the speed of the reaction, we can come to the conclusion that they very quickly got around the table and decided to Pretend that he had made a mistake. In other words, it wasn't just that they walked it back. Is they said he didn't mean what he meant, you know. But of course, he meant what he meant, and never he said it very clearly. Every the whole world heard him, and so in that sense, they were prioritizing walking back the policy change over not making making sure everybody didn't think they're a bunch of uh, dysfunctional staffers who can't keep their own president in line or whatever it is that you got to conclude once they take what he obviously said and tell you that he didn't say it. So it just looked like the Keystone Cops. That's really embarrassing. You know, on the policy front, we see a pattern of, you know, the president of the United States saying true things and then the White House scrambling to figure out if they want to either back him up or walk it back. Remember when President Biden said that Putin was a war criminal? Seemed pretty obvious. He wasn't saying something that was particularly controversial. But yet they fought it for days and weeks until they finally said, OK, fine, the president of the United States was right. So, you know, it's it's, it's unfortunate that they just don't, you know, apparently, especially in something that would probably have wide popular appeal, like the politics of being anti-Putin at this point are pretty strong. You know what I mean? So it doesn't make sense on a political front as well. But what it tells to the Ukrainians is, oh, wow, we really thought that President Biden got it. But unfortunately, President Biden is not the problem. It's his staff. And then the question is, OK, well, who's really in charge if the president is saying things that they then try to erase and say, oh, that's not what he meant, even though the plain meaning of the words are what they are. I mean, it, it is it's a disconcerting situation 
On the other part of this, though, Josh, winning the war and bringing an end to the war in a way that's acceptable, that isn't necessarily, you know, a, a giveaway to the Russians or any sort of capitulation. I wonder what you make of these conversations that are being had about the negotiations moving forward, about what would be an acceptable outcome here for both sides. And the reports earlier today from The Wall Street Journal that some of the people involved in those talks are at least showing some signs of potentially being poisoned, which we know is something that Russian intelligence does to their critics, their enemies. Where do you stand on an acceptable outcome here? Can it be negotiated at this time? Right. Well, listen, every war ends with diplomacy, every single one, always. The only question is on what terms. And, you know, what I hear and what I think a lot of the Washington, you know, reporters who actually talk to the Ukrainians here is consistent, that the Biden administration is pushing them towards a deal faster than they want to go. Not that they're against the deal, not that they can't negotiate on certain things, but that they're getting constantly pushed to end the war, end the war, end the war. And what that means is that it sort of, uh, you know, becomes clear that the U.S., priority and the Ukrainian priority are different. The Biden administration's priority is not to have the war spill over and get worse. And the Ukrainian government's priority is to survive and win the war, right? It's not to say that the other one doesn't want that other thing also, but which one's more important to you? If winning the war is the most important thing, then there's no way you can negotiate when they're poisoning your negotiators. It doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. It's an insane thing to do to go to Zelensky's people and say, hey, uh, you better go back to the negotiating table. Well, they just poisoned our guys. Okay, find some new guys. You know, it's, 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 it doesn't make any sense, right? But, you know, what I keep hearing is that the Biden people want to get to a deal on whatever terms are going to work for the shooting to stop. And I get the rationalization of that. But what we've seen over and over again is that actually uh, when you project that to Putin, he takes that as weakness and then he increases his cruelty to get better terms. And so mm-hmm. really I think they're going to have to fight this out a little bit longer. Last question, and it goes to a subject on which you're an expert, hence your book, and we also touched upon it earlier in the show today. We know that Beijing is watching all of this very closely, and some of that has bubbled up in terms of the way that they are or are not supporting the Russians in this. I just wonder how you see it in terms of what you think Chairman Xi is learning from all of this. What are the lessons that he is deriving from Moscow, from Kiev, and then the reaction from the Western world. Right. Well, first of all, we have to understand that, you know, the Chinese government is not a, 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 a saying to us, telling us and revealing to us in their foreign policy, foreign ministry and propaganda statements what their true intentions are. So a lot of people in Washington will take a look at what, you know, the foreign minister says, or the ambassador says on CBS and be like, oh, they're so conflicted about this war. Oh, the Chinese government really believes in sovereignty. Oh, they're not sided with Russia. After all, in fact, hey, maybe they can negotiate an end to this thing. Of course, that's all nonsense. That's the propaganda that they throw at us to try to get us to back off confronting them on any other range of fronts. Now, on their side, what they're doing is they're helping the Russians as much as possible without getting caught, without getting sanctioned for it. And they do that on the economic, ideological, information spheres, everything, except for maybe not the arms, but that's the one thing the Russians don't really need. Right? So what that means for us is that we have to realize that China and Russia are on the same team, and that's the team of totalitarian dictatorships that commit atrocities. That's not our team. We're on the other team. Ukraine's on our team. So that's just the way it is. And that doesn't mean we can't engage with China. It doesn't mean we have to have a cold war with China. It just means we have to see them for what they are, and that's uh, engaged in a scheme to 
join with their best friend Russia to supplant us against us. And, you know, the sooner we realize that, the better. Josh Rogan, columnist at The Washington Post in the Global Opinion section. He's also author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh, always appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Anytime. That's Josh Rogan on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. And we will be in Florida for the rest of the week, including Tallahassee. The next few days, we will be sitting down with Governor Ron DeSantis. You want to hear that interview here on the show tomorrow. So on Friday, we had a conversation here about producer Christine finally getting a Twitter a Twitter account, a Twitter handle. We had a discussion about what the options might be for the Twitter handle. We put an online poll up on Twitter for you all to weigh in, and there was a winner, which was Cookie Jar, which I believe was Wyatt's idea. So that was the winning option. Now, at Cookie Jar was already taken. So producer Christine had to slightly tweak the handle, but she has created an account. It is at Cookies Jar. So the plural of cookies, Jar, 1988, which, of course, is the year of her national aerobics championship. That's another story. But at Cookies Jar, 1988, and you'll know that it's her. She doesn't have that blue check mark just yet. But you can verify that it's her by checking out her avatar which is producer Christine in a hot dog costume. We've told that story before. She'll tell it to anyone, to strangers on the streets. That's how embarrassed, quote-unquote, she was. So that's from a few years ago, Christine in a hot dog outfit. And then the backdrop photo on her account page is poor, sweet carousel up in heaven. Up in the clouds with a rainbow. We all know what she did to Carousel. So we've got at Cookies Jar 1988. Welcome to Twitter, producer Christine. How excited are you? I've seen no tweets so far. When are you going to grace us with your first tweet? I think I think I'm going to do it after the show. I think it's time, right? I was going to tweet at you saying, "Hi, bestie. I'm here." Okay. So I very rarely use the mute function on Twitter, but that might be a good opportunity for me to add to my list, my short list of those muted. We'll see. I'm not I'm not making that threat yet. I'm just saying it's always a possibility. So at Cookies Jar 1988 could perhaps one of your first ever tweets, Christine, be about this news that came out over the weekend. This was at a show in London Saturday night. Your very favorite Phil Collins in front of a packed house delivered this bulletin cut 31. Tonight is a very special night. Of course, we're playing in London, and uh, it's the last stop of our tour. And it's the last show for Genesis. Oh! Oh! It's the last show 
for Genesis. It's the end of the road, he said. And you could hear the crowd reacting with disappointment because they were all, of course, there to see Genesis and to hear Phil Collins himself say, that's it, we're done. Obviously not something that they were all eager to hear, but that's what he announced. You are a huge fan of his. We've talked about this before. Did this ruin your weekend? You have a theory that maybe it's not the worst news because he could continue solo touring. How are you grappling with what happened? So I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. Of course, this is devastating because I would have loved to see him touring with Genesis. Um, I have not. I've seen Phil about six times, six or seven times, but I've never seen him tour with Genesis. So what I'm thinking is if you heard what he said, he said this was his last show with Genesis. I'm hoping, now his condition doesn't look great, if you saw the video or if you've seen pictures of him. I was looked, actually kind of taken aback. He he has definitely aged substantially in recent years. Yes. Uh, he's got a lot of health issues going on. He can't even drum. His son, Nick, actually is the drummer for Genesis and for him on his solo tours now. Who And his son is unbelievable, amazing. But he can't, he can't even hold drumsticks. And he can't even stand really during a show. He sits down, which is fine because the voice is there. I'm hoping that maybe we can get one more solo tour out of him. Like a farewell tour, just him. Yes, he's done farewell tours before, obviously. But, yeah, just like if I could just get one more show in, maybe I'll tweet him, actually. Oh, good idea. I'm going to use my Twitter account. I'm going to tweet at him. All right, at Cookies Jar 1988 might convince him to do just one more round of shows. If you knew it was his last show ever, for sure, done after that night, how much would you pay to be there? I honestly, I, whatever the, the cost for whatever the first five rows would be, or even the first 10, whatever it would cost, I would, I would go. I would, I would even not care if someone wasn't like, I love Bobby. and I, I would, would suggest that you could like sell your house or something, but you've already done that. <laughs> um, I, I would give up my Botox money that I'm saving. For these tickets, I would probably spend a, a decent amount of money on this ticket. And like I said, I wouldn't care if I had to go by myself just to be in that, you know, first 10 rows. I, it, it's a must. I'd have to. Have Another to. topic that I want to get to with you before we run out of time, and of course we open the show with it as well. It is not the most important thing happening in the world. I think we can all hopefully agree on that. However, everyone is talking about the melee at the Oscars last night. I was not watching. I don't really watch these award shows. They are boring to me. If something interesting happens, I can find it on YouTube. And something interesting happened last night with Will Smith and Chris Rock, and everyone has their different take. And I know you have strong feelings, producer Christine. You haven't tweeted about them yet, at CookiesJar1988. But what is your hot take on what happened? I'm so, so disappointed in Will. And guess what? Oh, this is so great. I'm going to let him know that. I'm going to tweet at him as well. First, I'll tweet Phil, and then I'll let Will know what's up here. And what's up is Cookie Ain't Happy. You can't be doing that. You can't be resorting to physical violence. Trust me, I get angry. I'm from Jersey, and I'm Italian. I'm a hothead. But I don't go around hitting people. So... 
um, Will, you dropped major points in my book. And the next time I take a trip to Miami and I get on that airplane, I'm not going to sing to the pilot anymore that I'm going to Miami, which I normally do. That's a true story. That's your one-woman protest Mm -hmm. against what you saw there. Did you actually watch it as it happened? I did. My husband and I were watching it, and I thought – because Bobby had just set up the TVs in our new apartment, and I thought he did something wrong to the TV because it just went silent. And I thought something – it was kind of like the Sopranos moment. Remember that last scene? (laughs) <laughs> where yeah, the, so people were like, wait, what just happened? Yes. Oh, what they were doing was they were cutting the audio out because there was a lot of cursing happening. Do you think the joke was out of bounds or does it not matter? I, I don't think the joke was – first of all, I don't even think it was a good joke. And I definitely don't think that Chris Rock probably knew that she had alopecia and it was really Oh, sensitive. yes, he did. That was the whole point of the joke. That, I he don't absolutely think knew so. That. I don't yes, think so. That was the whole joke. That was the whole joke, Christine. But to me, it doesn't matter, as we talked about earlier. But you are points off for Will Smith is what it sounds like. And you will let him know as much on your Twitter feed, which is brand new as of today, by popular demand, at CookiesJar1988. You can go see Cookie there in her little hot dog outfit and see all of her pearls of wisdom. And more importantly, you can respond to her. Be nice, though. Back here tomorrow from Tallahassee, Florida. It'll be the Guy Benson Show with special guest, Governor Ron DeSantis. My one-on-one is Tuesday. You don't want to miss that. On the Guy Benson Show, have a great night. We will talk to you then. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.